welcome to the Open Labour podcast. My name's Josie Parkhouse. I'm a city councillor here um, in Exeter and I'm joined today by um, some fantastic guests who I'm sure have a wealth of information to tell us um, as we're, we've just seen the first anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. So I'm joined by um, Alex Sobel, the Labour and Cooperative MP for Leeds Northwest, um, who is the Shadow Minister for um, Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, but also the co-chair of the Ukraine Group in Parliament, and um, Anna McMorrin, who's the Labour MP for Cardiff North um, and is Shadow Minister for Justice. And they both recently went on a parliamentary convoy to Ukraine. So um, I'm sure we'll hear a lot about this trip and, and some of the significant events and, and memories that you guys have of, of just coming back. So when did you come back? So um, last Sunday, so the 26th of Feb, we came back. So it doesn't seem that long ago now. Yeah, great. So can you just talk us through, you know, how this trip came to be and, and what was the thinking behind, um, behind it? So I became the co-chair of the Ukraine APG in the middle of December. And I know there's quite a lot of us, Anna, as well, that, that, that wanted to go. And my particular view was, was there's so much need in Ukraine. There's no point just rocking up, going for some meetings in the parliament, you know, and going home again. We need to do something more substantial. So I was speaking to Alessia Vasilenko, who's uh, one of the co-chairs of the British group in the Ukrainian parliament, and we talked about the things that were needed in, in, in Ukraine. So we talked about aid, about demining, about a whole range of issues. And I said, well, why don't we organise um, uh, an aid convoy? And, and she was, that's, you know, it's a good idea if you can do it. So um, an ambitious thing, really, to say that we'd organise an aid convoy. And then I said, well, we should come for the anniversary of the, of the invasion. And that was two and a half months away. <laughs> so that was very ambitious. But we pulled a group of people together really great group of charities, local authorities, um, the, the LGA together, and we managed to somehow uh, get a convoy going, which was four vans, and then there were two Arctic lorries involved, as well, but they, they left early, they weren't directly with us. So it was quite a big aid convoy in the end, and and um, and there were four MPs, myself and Anna, obviously, and two Conservatives, uh, Kevin Foster and Scott Benton, as well as others who are involved in this. That's great, and you joined, Anna. I did, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, I discussed this with Alex back in November, December, and was really keen to get over to Ukraine to to speak to some of the colleagues over in the parliament there that, who we had met in, in London. But also, as Alex said, to make it meaningful, not just rock up um, and have those conversations, just to do something to help. So I think supporting and, and going with an aid convoy and getting charities, working with a charity, uh, um, getting um, people to give donations, medical supplies, toiletries. Um, we took uh, a, ge a generator, which ended up in a, in a village very close to the Belarus border, who hadn't had electricity since the start of the war. Um, so, you know, that it really meant something. And it was it was quite an incredible experience to be there, to drive across the border, to see where the aid was going, but also then have conversations with people who are living and working on the ground, uh, 
distributing that aid. That's fantastic. And I think that really stuck out when I was um, watching Alex's video diaries from from the convoy that, you know, it was responding to that need. And when one thing I hadn't even considered, you know, was the compasses that you took over. Um, do you want to talk about why you, you took yeah. over the compasses? So about three weeks before we um, went, I had a meeting with Louise Vaughan, who's the communication director of Halo, who also happens to live in Leeds, which is very coincidental. And I, I talked about us doing this and she said, one of the big issues we've got is surveying. We don't have enough equipment. It's hard for us to get equipment there. I said, well, we, you know, taking the aid convoy, she said, well, can you take a box of compasses? And so I said, yes, of course. So they sent a box of compasses to Louise's house in Leeds. She dropped it at my house and I took so, it in the van. So to wind it back, it's, it's, a, it's related to demining, isn't it? Their, yeah. their initiative. So the compasses, so basically they survey, um, they have to survey to see whether there are mines there. And it's not just mines, actually. So probably people think about landmines, traditional landmines. But actually, the Russians have booby-trapped houses as well, done all sorts of things, road, road um, wire, all of those sort of things. It's absolutely vicious. Two or three children are killed every day in Ukraine um, from, from booby-traps and landmines. So the survey equipment, which the compasses are like key part of, are really key to that. And, and the demining work is going to be work that is going to go on for years and years and years, you know, long after the conflict. And it's really sad, actually, that great areas of the country are just no-go areas because of, of mines. Yeah, it's something that, you know, personally I hadn't considered, but obviously you know, when you think about it, is is going to be a big problem. And um, yeah, Alex, you mentioned um, the children that are sadly losing their lives due to these booby-trapped houses. And I, I, I know that you mentioned also about an issue of children being kidnapped and displaced. Yeah. So that was, that was raised to us quite a lot. We had a meeting with um, human rights sort of NGOs from Crimea, and they particularly raised it. So what's happening is is areas under Russian occupation. The Russians are taking young children, particularly young children who might be orphaned, taking them to Russia, falsifying birth certificates, saying they're Russian. And so they then there's even a Russian minister who's adopted two of these children, these Ukrainian children, and falsified them and said they're Russian. So it's a really big issue, and it's very difficult to do anything about because they're obviously all in Russian territory. It's all completely under Russian government. But those children might completely lose their identity. Some of them who are very young, they, they they probably grow up and not know they're Ukrainian. So it's a real, it's, that's about sort of erasure. You know, that's another, you know, I think a genocide is killing people, but also it's about er, er, erasure of identity. And that's what they're, they're doing there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you talk about um, genocide and obviously, um, you know, you were, you were traveling through Germany and, and you visited the Holocaust memorial sites there. Um, and I wonder, you know, you made some links between between that and some of the, the things that are going on. I wonder if you could, um, either of you could expand on any of that. Yeah. So we, we went we went to um, uh, Krakow was our final stop on the last night before we were going to cross the border. And we got there quite late. Uh, and of course, we were staying on the edge of towns because and cities because uh, with the big vans you couldn't get in but we kept we went in for dinner and wandered rounds and actually ended up at, at um schindler's old the factory where he rescued many 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 jews during the, the second world war and it was really 
poignant to be there on the eve of the, the, the day we were going to cross over into Ukraine, where there are horrific crimes against the people there happening right now on our doorstep. So that linkage was just really stark and very, very worrying. And I think it, that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to go and want to keep talking about Ukraine war is that this is a war that's happening on our doorstep and it's happening now. These are There are war crimes happening. There are some horrific acts of violence perpetrated against people, women, um, sexual violence, really nasty, nasty stuff that is happening right now. Um, and, and we've got to keep raising that awareness because people get, you know, it's, it's not leading the news anymore. It's, we're not hearing about it. We've got to keep talking about it so that people are actually realising that this is, this is something that we've got to stop. Absolutely. Um, and you, you mentioned kind of war crimes. I mean, in your opinions, do you think it's likely that Peter will ever be tried as a war criminal? This is a really live issue at the moment. We're having a lot of meetings in Parliament about this. So there are, there are, there are some different schools of thought, but, but most people agree that we need to have a special tribunal, um, sort of Nuremberg model tribunal. Um, and, and there are a debate and lawyers, you know, two lawyers, two opinions, uh, have different views. So some lawyers say that we can try him at special tribunal absentia and others say that we can't. Obviously, it's going to be very difficult to get Putin to a tribunal wherever in the world that might be. Um, so that's that's a difficulty. But the UK government actually is very supportive of a special tribunal. The US aren't there yet. Everybody's agreed that, that we won't be able to, to hold a special tribunal without support of the US. So so there's so that's where an, an area where we need to build pressure. So we're now trying to think about how we um, speak to particularly to Democrats in the US in Congress and try and build support with them. Um, but it's not the tribunal's not going to be a quick thing but but i think that that also the other part of it is is the is the issue around assets russian assets so you know we need a lot of russian assets not all are frozen they need to be seized because frozen is just like an aspect your bank account's frozen you can get it back if they're seized it's seized and it's no longer yours and and then you need to build pressure from there so it's about it's about having consequences for people and and you know it's about tightening tightening um, the sort of environment around Putin where people are, are less and less likely to support him because their ability to travel internationally has reduced, their ability to live internationally has reduced, their, their uh, assets, even though they're illegally gained, um, are seized from them. And, and then you sort of build, you build that sort of environment where we can then go towards uh, a special tribunal of those perpetrating the war rather than some of those around who are just, you know, facilitating the finances of Russia, which is a slightly different thing. And I think I'd add to that, just um, we need to make sure that we're investigating internationally the crime of aggression, which is not the norm in an international tribunal. So that is another, that's making sure that we hold Putin to account for his crimes. That's not an easy thing to get to. Um, and that's where we in Labour are pushing for. And it's something that the UK government has got to take that lead in creating that special tribunal to investigate that crime of aggression. But, um, you know, in the same model that a tribunal was set up 
to prosecute Nazi war criminals uh, in, at Nuremberg. So that was a special tribunal that was set up. Um, and that I, I've actually just got back from New, the UN in New York, where I had some more conversations with the UN on the models and the ways forward for this. And it's not easy. The uh, uh, Russia sits on the Security Council, so has a veto there. Can't go. So obviously we couldn't go through that route. So there has to be a, a, a special tribunal set up and that needs the international community to work together to bring that forward. And the sooner we do that, the better. We don't need to wait to, until the war is over before he's held to account, because just the very fact of holding that this process will help uh, with the propaganda and to, to combat that propaganda, the Russian propaganda that's being put out across the world in some of the so-called neutral states right now to really start overturning that narrative, to start realising that actually what Putin is saying is not true. These are these are things that are happening right now, war crimes that he's got to be held account to account for. Um, but it's it's not easy because there is no straightforward international judicial process um, and also there is the issue of immunity because he is a world leader right now he's he is currently has immunity so we've got to make sure that that that, that he is held to account um, but we are working um, and the UK is working towards that end and you mentioned you know the work that the UK um is doing on this I think we have taken quite a strong stance internationally um why do you think the UK seems to have been taking the lead internationally in supporting Ukraine I, I think I don't know, it's quite difficult but I, I think we're maybe less exposed we're close we're in Europe we understand the consequence of European war you know we were the last holdout in Europe uh in in the second world war um and and the other thing is we're not as exposed to things like Russian gas as some of the other countries. So we don't have some of the national energy security issues, although obviously everybody suffered because the wholesale price of gas went up. But um, but but more directly, we're less exposed. So um, and also, I think that we've, there's a re there is very strong cross party support. So there's no drag on this. Um, and. We, we can sort of we are sort of we're acting in NATO in a certain way, but we're also acting economically in another way. But in some ways, we're not. I mean, you know, let's not get too excited. This is a Labour podcast. So th there are there are areas of government policy which are which are lagging behind and they should be further ahead. So I just talked about the assets. The UK government isn't the lead on assets internationally. We we are we are without a doubt one of the biggest holders of assets. Nobody quite knows exactly the extent of Russian assets. The UK could even be the biggest holder of Russian assets. We're not quite sure, um, but we're very substantial holders of Russian assets in the city of London in terms of property and land and, and other things. Um, and uh, for instance, Canada's passed legislation. It's not as good as it could be, but they actually have some legislation unlike us, and they have started to seize Russian assets rather than just freeze them. The UK, um, the, the legislation isn't coming from government. Let's see what the budget brings. But I'm not massively holding my breath. I'm, I'm would be really pleased to be wrong. But the the bill that's come forward is from Chris Bryant, Labour MP, um, and it's not from the government. There is some cross party support, but I don't think the government 
agrees with every aspect of Chris's bill. A lot of conservatives do. You know, in the Ukraine APPG, you know, because they're backbench conservatives, that's where we have a lot of consensus. But the government's a different matter. And um, there seems to be less of an appetite for seizing Russian assets. And the um, there's two types of assets. There's, there's state-owned assets and then there's private assets. So assets basically owned by oligarchs or even individuals in some case in the government like Putin himself owns houses through slightly complicated um, structures, but does own houses in London, even even one apparently, which is opposite Buckingham Palace. So um, the state assets, though, there's very little comeback. So the government could move quickly on seizure of Russian assets, and, and they are worth a very significant amount of money uh, in the UK, um, billions of pounds of, of, of state assets in, in the UK. Um, the, what they're worried about private assets is court, so that if you're a Russian oligarch and your assets been seized and it's no longer yours and it's been sold and the money's gone to Ukraine or it's in the process of doing that, then you know you, you might well take the UK government to court and I suppose as possibly you could win. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not I'm not entirely sure how the legal process goes. Um, and that's there's a, that's where the um, holdout is. But at the end of the day, we legislate, we make the rules. Uh, the law the law is there to um, to see whether those those laws are um, fit within the international framework and um, within our supposed you know constitution. Although we don't have a, a constitution as such, um, and so. Uh, it's it's we need to go through that process. So not bringing legislation forward, and not testing that in both houses is something that I'm very critical of the government of. And as I said, they could they could seize Russian state assets with very little comeback. Also, the government is not pursuing the crime of aggression because it it is a difficult one. It, um, I think they're talking about the prosecution of Putin and holding him accountable in a in a, an international court. But the actual crime of aggression, which is the key one to hold him him to account in the form of Nuremberg trials, isn't on the table for them. So we need to, as Labour, we need to keep pursuing that and find a way through to make sure that happens. You took my next question. <laughs> um, I guess you could talk maybe a bit about the work that the APPG does, um, Alex. It's a really broad APPG. I think, I think we're probably getting to the point where we're we're probably not numerically the biggest group in Parliament, we're certainly the busiest group. It's hard to find a day in the parliamentary diary where we're not running some sort of event. I mean, next week we've got we've got two on Monday, we've got a couple on Tuesday. Wednesday is is lo there's loads penciled in, even though it's the budget. So because we've got we've got about nine or ten Ukrainian MPs, it's very much driven by Ukrainian MPs being in London. So if a Ukrainian MP comes and says, I want to speak about an issue, then we put on events. So next week we've got a, a chair of a, of a committee, which is about early warning systems. So that's another thing, you know, that's not being talked about. So their air raid warning system, air and missile warning system is old. It's not automated. It's got a whole load of issues. I mean, when we were there, there were, there were a couple of air raid warnings and there was no air. There was there were, you know, effectively false flags, which is also not helpful because people aren't going to the to the shelters because they're going, oh, well, you know, there's no actual air raids. You know, it's, we, you know, we have to live our lives and they don't bother going to the shelters. So that's dangerous. So um, they want to develop a modern air raid warning system, but they need money for that. And it costs about four billion dollars, apparently, which is a huge amount of money. And the UK government haven't offered any money towards that. Um, 
and you can do it a bit by bit it's not it's not like you do it all at once so there are parts of um ukraine where there are where there are more modern systems and other parts where there are less modern systems and so you know it's a whole thing so that's one area we're dealing with next week um there are whole there are a whole range like the other issue is like russia russia's membership of um international institutions you know should russia be a member of the un should Russia be a member of an organisation? Me and Anna are very involved with the Interparliamentary Union. You know, should Russia be in all of these things? Council of Europe, they've had their membership suspended there. You know, there's all of these different multinational, multilateral organisations where the Russia has strong, particularly UN, where they're permanent member security council. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the Ukrainians are pursuing this, and, and rightly so. So to go back a bit to your to the trip, I mean, um, you went to a three-hour press conference with Zelensky. Yeah. Yeah. What were the key messages? Pretty amazing. Yeah. I was going to say we were the only two UK MPs at that press conference. The two Labour the MPs two and the MPs at the press conference. Yeah. Yeah. Right. With the world press on yeah. the day of the one year on from the start of the war. So, you know, it, it, all the international press clamouring to ask questions. Um, and the location wasn't given until the very last minute. Um, uh, uh, and it was in a basement. But I don't think I've ever seen um, a country leader in that way speak for three hours at his own press conference with no notes, with huge technical detail and knowledge, with great passion, um, answering personal questions as well as technical questions, as well as, you know, defence, foreign affairs, diplomacy he is aware and well aware and what he's doing is in is very very um astute in reaching out to gain that support of the international community and you know that's why he came to the uk a few weeks ago that's why he went to france he's traveled he's he's been to the white house to get that support uh he is well aware as the mps are it uh of that kind of um, fatigue that sets in. Um, people see wars everywhere. There are dreadful things happening all over the world. For them, this is obviously this is the most important, and this is this is what you know they are warning that that this could spread. This the geopolitics of this war uh, and the implications of the of it, unless we support and put a stop to it, are huge. Um, so I think he is well aware of that, but he's also very, very astute and clever at gaining that support, gaining that collaboration from across the world. But let's not forget, it's not the whole world that is in support. There are many, many countries who are subject to a lot of Russian propaganda, uh, subtle, very subtle propaganda sometimes on their television screens, not realising that the, the, what Putin is doing and the illegal invasion and the crimes that are being currently committed they are the russians are being told that it's the ukrainians who are the nazis it's the ukrainians that started this war so this is a this is a you know in this modern age also russians are very very clever um and good at the digital warfare um subverting messages making you know we've heard you know there could be victims coming forward of of abuse who actually that was faked so that's trying to undermine what is actually going on because there are huge amounts of victims 
there who, and it's not fake. Uh, there are some horrific crimes going on, but this is, uh, we know that there are Russian bots, there are Russians Ill infiltrating a lot of the um, uh, organizations working around the world, country at country level, but also the propaganda. So this is a war unlike we've ever, ever experienced it. And I know that UK are helping with some of that digital transformation, that digital awareness and warfare, um, as is America. So it, it, is, it isn't straightforward, but going back to that press conference, it was just an incredibly um, impressive show of knowledge and um, experience and came from the heart. I don't know if you, you agree, Alex. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what was really interesting was he knew what points to make on what to ask for yeah. with each country. So the one that the one that stuck in my mind was Australia. Australian journalists who happened to be a Brit from, from ABC, from their national broadcaster, asked because Australia's the last allied nation, major allied nation, not to return their ambassador to Kiev and reopen their embassy. And he said, you know, do you want do you want to see the, the Australian ambassador back in the embassy open? And he said, you know, we value the support of Australia They've been really helpful. They've supplied Bushmasters, which are, you know, as an, as an armoured um, all-terrain vehicle, which has helped us prosecute this war. So, of course, I want to welcome the Australian ambassador back to Kiev, but I want to see him arrive in a Bushmaster because we need more Bushmasters to help us win this war. You knew exactly what buttons to push. And every, everybody, whether they were a, um, an allied nation or whether they were a non-aligned nation, or a nation that might fall into the Russian sphere of influence, or um, there weren't ones very directly. Obviously, Russia wasn't there, Belarus wasn't there, countries like that weren't there. But there were ones, China, you know, the Chinese journalists there, there were Central Asian journalists there, etc. So he knew how to speak to them, and and he was doing that because obviously he was broadcasting into those territories and terrains and putting pressure on those countries' leaders and speaking directly to those people, and and sometimes. He mainly did speak in Ukrainian, but sometimes he spoke a little bit in English. The English is, you know, very good. He doesn't, he can answer questions to to, to anglophile, anglophone journalists in English, but he sort of was careful when he did it to make a particular point. You know, he's very, he's very good in terms of his symbolism and his communications, which, you know, which you can understand. But actually also sort of adding to Anna's point about Russia and Russian misinformation, we think, oh, well, that's all coming out of Russia. It's not. I was in Kosovo last year, and one of their biggest um, centres, misinformation centres, if you like, is in Serbia, in Nish, and there are 3,000 Russian personnel in that centre. And they're not only broadcasting about Ukraine or Chechnya or Transnistria or the other other areas which are, which are directly to Russia. They're also utilising an information war to destabilise those countries near to Serbia, like Bosnia, uh, like Montenegro and Kosovo, and and you know, and, and the Russians view Serbia as a proxy state, and and they are trying to inflame a proxy war in the Western Balkans, and so we're thinking now about Ukrainian war, but actually, it wasn't that long ago that we had we had major wars in the Western Balkans, and so people think, oh well, this is the end, you know, and Ukraine's just like you know, as an isolated thing, it's not. In Ch China now and Taiwan, that is a whole other thing. That's a whole other level. But there's, there's there's probably fifteen to twenty places where it's it's effectively potential conflict zone where there is some connection to to Putin and, and the Kremlin. 
you know, in, in, in a greater or lesser way and some connection to this war. And the fact that um, Syria is a really good example, the fact that, um, that, that Putin is allies, and if you think about where the Wagner Group's been, that's really, if you just look at the history of the Wagner Group, where they've been, that's, there's, there's your trail. The fact they effectively won Syria, and they effectively won Syria at the point the US withdrew their support, shows to them that they can win through information war, through grinding down domestic audiences, through withdrawing, they can then um, work with their proxies to win. And this isn't a proxy war, it's a direct war, but it doesn't mean that there can't be another 10 or 15 proxy wars in the next two years, which are usually stabilising in every single way and stop us you know, combating other issues like climate change or poverty or other things. They mask all of those issues as well. So we're just going backwards on everything. Yeah, it's a pretty grim picture when you kind of set it out in terms of the international context. Um, yeah, I mean... I want to talk a bit about migrants because obviously um, this has been in the news this week. Um, you know, there's obvious issues with the conservative policy in, in relation to um, their policy on migration has been horrendous. Um, I mean, should we be offering um, refuge for people the same as we've done with the Homes for Ukraine scheme? Is there, um, and, and also should we be offering help to Russians fleeing, fleeing their country? You know, you're talking about the propaganda that, that Russians are uh, subjected to and, and a lot of them um, do believe that, but, but there are a few who, who are standing up to Russia. I just wanna hear your views on, on how, you know, how we can think holistically about, about that. I mean, obviously our aim should be that, that Russia is eventually welcomes the armed democratic nations and I, I think it certainly isn't it's totalitarian state now um without a doubt even though it might have some you know window dressing of democracy you know they have elections etc um but um anything that we can do to support russian opposition a lot of younger russian people professionals fled russia at the beginning of the war particularly to turkey there was there were, the flights to istanbul were full um and I think if somebody is under threat from the Kremlin, they're not just, you know, um, doing it for economic purposes. If if there's if there are political reasons, then we should hundred percent give them political asylum. We're not very good at giving people political asylum anymore. You know, I know lots of people who are given political asylum in this country under a Labour government. Some of whom, like Kosovans, who have gone back and are now in the leadership of their own country. Um, but and some of whom are still here because their their territories are occupied or the you know the the totalitarian regime is still in in control. Um, but but this the even even with Afghan MPs, the government didn't do a good job. I had three Afghan MPs in a hotel yeah. in Leeds. Yeah. Um, they were stuck in this hotel for ages, and at the end of it, their mental health room. They said, "We just wish we'd gone to Canada because everybody we knew in Canada, they're put in a house, they're treated well, they're treated as though." They were um, elected representatives of their country, and we were stuck here in this hotel and completely inappropriately, not told anything, given no support, and that and that was true right across the piece, you know. So actually, you know, one of the things the government going on about all oh, the huge cost of hotels, they've kept them in hotels. These would have been very easy for the government to move people onto housing, uh, but they've chosen to keep them in hotels because it's a political tool. So yeah. asylum. Not from Ukraine, I might want to add, but from from every other conflict zone in recent times, so that's Syria, Afghanistan, um, Myanmar, wherever it is, has been used as a political tool rather than trying to resolve the problem of people trying, fleeing war 
I mean, I, I completely agree. I think I've got um, a hotel full of um, fleeing asylum seekers from Syria, Afghanistan, um, all over the world. Um, and they are kept there. They're in limbo. They can't do anything. That We're not told how long they're going to be there. We're told from, from, you know, two to three weeks. And then it turns out to be six months and longer. And then they, we don't, they don't know where their next stop is. Um, there's children that really eager to get to school, restart their schooling. But if they're only going to be there a couple of weeks, we can't find places for them in local schools. It's an impossible situation for them. So there needs to be a much better system at making sure that we have a welcoming uh, place for these asylum seekers who simply can't go back to their country it's um, too dangerous for them to go back uh, and they need a place to be. They need a place where their children can go to school, where they're not fearful of repercussions here because we know there have been some pretty horrific right wing attacks on those hotels because they were put together. Also, just on a very basic level, I was there and they were being fed some pretty awful food, I have to say. So they, they're coming from places like Syria or Afghanistan with children there refusing this kind of plain pasta meal um, because the children don't know, they don't know that kind of food. It's, it, it, it looked awful even for us, but um, they bring in outside caterers. The hotel wasn't allowed to provide its own. We were trying to work with a local refugee organisation to try and provide some better food. They wouldn't allow that either. So it's just pretty shocking how these people are treated. We need to do better. And, and you know, as we've seen from the, these scandals that's unravelling right now, uh, the hostile place that Britain is, is becoming through this very right-wing government, it's got to change. Yeah, definitely. So I just want to wrap up really by um, asking each of you, you know, you visited on the one year anniversary I watched the videos it's clear that it's a very it was a very emotional timing for the trip and and look I, I'm not gonna pretend that you know it's it's not easy to ignore the news on Ukraine and and switch off because it's just so difficult to keep um, educating yourself but what do you think, you know, listeners to this Open Labour podcast, what, what can they do? What, what's a practical thing that they can do to support Ukraine? I mean, I'd say that um, the charity partner work, Make a Difference Foundation, is doing really good. It's a small charity and it's going to those bits of Ukraine, the big disaster emergency committee, UN type agencies aren't going to for various reasons. Um, so they're great guys. We know they're doing a good job. We help deliver their aid. So if you want to give some money, I definitely give it some money to make a difference foundation um, and, and their project, their operation, safe drop. Um, you know, do all the normal things. Think about an issue which isn't like this, like the, this issue about seizure of assets and write to your MP, particularly the Conservative MP, um, about it. Um, do what you can to support the Ukrainian community here um, and just show support for Ukraine. You know, they, they love the symbolism. You know, have a Ukrainian flag, have a Ukrainian, you know, art. we wear them all the time, we wear a little, little badge or whatever. Um, it's just really important because there's so many Ukrainians here in the country and they'll see that and they'll really, really appreciate it. Yeah, um, I, I think I, I agree with all of that. Um, I think we, we've we got to keep the 
profile of what is going on there up continually because this is happening on our doorstep it is happening now and I think what anyone can do is just keep being aware of the situation keep talking about it to your friends and family write to your MP um, support the charities that are working out there by by giving the donations that are needed not just any donations but specific requests for donations that are needed so medical supplies toiletries things things that are asked for um, but you know I think it will absolutely that trip will absolutely stay with me I felt really sad coming I felt very apprehensive before I went but very sad leaving um, it's a tremendously one warm opening well welcoming country the people are just lovely and they are being persecuted for no reason none they have done nothing and i think supporting your local community ukrainian communities here in the uk is incredibly important showing that solidarity um and knowing that all of them will know people will have family members who have been persecuted have suffered from the Russians and are continuing to suffer from it. Uh, seeing the devastation, the deliberate acts, of, uh, cr criminal acts of uh, a primary school being deliberately bombed a sec and a secondary school and a supermarket all within close proximity to each other was just really, really horrific to see. That was up near the Belarus border. But look, this is happening all of the time. We need to keep that and maintain that pressure and public profile that this is happening. And I think Alex and I are definitely going to go back and take some aid back. So we will be planning another trip out there to deliver aid very soon. Just we are we are going to do more of these trips, but actually, um, once the once the war is over, and I'm hoping for you know as soon as we can as soon as we can see Ukrainian victory in the war and and Ukraine returned to uh, to to its to its full. Uh, status people should go on holiday there it's an amazing yeah. place um lviv actually hasn't had much damage and it is you know it's going to lviv is like going to poland people go to krakow and a place like that for for weekends all the time so go to lviv go to kiev 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 again very vibrant place it's a modern european city don't be don't think of it as alien or as you know some place where you won't you won't be able to enjoy all the things that you do on a weekend in Krakow or Prague or 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 any of those places. It's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. They're just under under these warlike conditions. But we had such a good time there as much as we could with the people that were there. You know, real camaraderie, just amazing people. And the and you know the food was great. I mean, you know, oh, this is ironic. You know, you went in the supermarket and they had tomatoes and cucumbers and lettuces and peppers. You know, so they're having war, but they they can get they can get fresh uh, vegetables in their supermarkets. We don't get, but um, the, the 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 country is is just an amazing place. And, and as soon as people are able to go, they should go. That's a great passing message. Um, and yeah, thank you both so much for coming on and sharing your incredible experience of this parliamentary convoy. Thanks, Thank thanks Josie. Thanks very much. much.